Welcome to Your Live Well, the podcast series bringing you expert-led advice, thoughts and opinions from across the breadth of well-being and from some of the amazing contributors featured at Live Well London 2020. In this episode, Liz Earl, MBE, well-being entrepreneur and founder of Liz Earl Wellbeing, shares her thoughts on taking a 360 approach to well-being in midlife. Aging well is about being comfortable in your skin, finding new ways of getting your happy hormones through the menopause, eating well for your mood, discovering the benefits of gut health, and finding easy and sustainable ways to get moving. Liz shares her wealth of well-being experience and why it's never too late to get started. We hope you enjoy listening. So, uh, I am going to talk to you a little bit about my journey into midlife well-being and uh, focusing really on two things that I think are the most important, particularly for midlife women, and that is gut health and hormone health. So this came about really because my last two books were the focus of these subjects. So the first one was The Good Gut Guide, which came out I think about three, four years ago, and then The Good Menopause Guide, which came out a couple of years ago. So, um, does anybody know my magazine, This Our Wellbeing? Oh, great. Lovely. Thank you for putting your hand up. Any subscribers? Oh, great. Uh, well, this is, this is the new one. This is uh, actually coming out next week. This is the retail edition. So if you're not a subscriber and you buy it in the shops, this is um, what you'll be seeing. But I don't know, have you, has anybody got their subscriber copy yet? It literally, I, I think it started to go out yesterday. So I'm really excited about it. Uh, if anybody wants to subscribe, there is an offer um, Actually, for my, it's actually related to my podcast. So if you go on to Liz Earl Wellbeing and you can uh, see the magazine subscription page, if you put Liz Earl Pod, as in podcast, then it comes up with a 30% money off. Anyway, I just mentioned that in case you're interested. Uh, so my background, um, I'm probably better known for creating cleanse and polish. Does anybody use cleanse and polish? Yes, me too. Uh, so, but I actually did have a life before a skincare company, um, and I started my life working actually for magazines. So it's funny going back full circle, having my own magazine, because that's where I started. I started as a health and beauty writer, as a journalist for a monthly magazine called Woman's Journal about 35 years ago. Uh, obviously, as a very small child, because, you know, I mean, clearly, uh, um, I was in my early 20s then, and I was really lucky, actually, because that was at a time when the sort of the, the natural health world and the world of well-being was just beginning to be written about. And we had all these new exciting people like nutritionists and complementary medicine practitioners and reflexologists and all these sort of weird and wonderful people that we're surrounded with today who do such great work. It was just, just really beginning to happen and I was starting my career in the magazine world and so I was tasked with going to have to interview and write about a lot of these new weird and wonderful people and that's really where my passion began for health and well-being. So I started in magazines and developed a passion for writing and research and so I moved very quickly actually away from magazines into writing books. So I've published 36 books, uh, most of them are quite small. Um, in more recent years I've gone back to writing kind of longer form bigger books because I really am a great believer in true evidence-based research and I hope that all of you who enjoy the magazine will know that everything that we do is 
very factual, it's very evidence-based. I'm not into passing fads. It's very easy, I think, in the world of well-being to get swept along with um, some kind of new fad or new idea. But for me, it has to be really grounded in good, proper research. And ultimately, it has to work. I'm not interested in writing about stuff or putting things into my own life and spending time and effort and money on things that don't actually work. So that's my background. Uh, I started writing books. My very first book actually was called Vital Oils, and it was all about oils and fats in the diet. And I'm really pleased to see that now the whole industry and, and nutrition movement is moving back very much in favor of healthy fats. We went through a really dark time, I think, uh, where everything was low fat, and actually it's what we need is low sugar, high fat, especially for women. And the reason for that is that good, healthy fats are the mothership of making our hormones. We make our own healthy hormones, estrogen, progesterone, and we need healthy fats to do that. So particularly as we get into middle life and beyond, we do not want to be going low fat. We want to be having good quality, healthy fats. So I'm talking about things like olive oil, extra virgin olive oil, or EVU, as we're now seeing it written, uh, avocados, healthy whole fat and you know, I'll talk about kefir and yogurts and things in a minute I always buy whole milk whole full fat yogurt cheese I had a nice big portion of cheese for my breakfast you know these are the healthy fats that I believe in saturated fat uh, I'm actually writing a new book for next year which is focusing on going back to my original uh, hobby horse really which is talking about good quality fats so, so I was writing about fats and oils and then uh, this weird thing called daytime television started uh, 31 years ago with Richard and Judy on This Morning. So I started with them. And I remember thinking at the time, daytime television, I mean, that will never work. You know, who's going to sit and watch TV in the middle of the day? And of course, um, don't ask me to predict trends because that's clearly not one of my strengths. So, you know, I now, funnily enough, go back and work on This Morning with Holly and Phil uh, and love I actually love communicating love live television so I was doing all of that and I was writing more books and I was doing lots of TV I had a show called Lizard's Lifestyle which was filmed in my home in Putney in London and then a girlfriend of mine um, came along and said you know Liz you, you should really put all your knowledge about skin and beauty and start a skincare company I thought yeah I'm not really you know that sounds okay but I'm very busy doing my my books and my TV and things and she said no no we'll do it together and you know it'll be a sideline famous last words so that's how the Lizelle Beauty Company really came to be and of course we built it the two of us from uh, literally from the ground up from from two young women into what became one of the biggest independent beauty companies in, in Britain before it was sold back in 2010 and I don't have any connection with it at all now um, but I'm very proud of it you know it's a bit I have five children and it's it, I always see the beauty company as a bit like my sixth child you know you nurture you give birth to something you give it life and then you see it grow up and, and go on its way so that's kind of how I view it now um, but what that has meant over the last few years is that I've been able to really return to my true love and my fundamental passions and that is about well-being and the reason I just give you that bit of potted history is just to show that I'm not somebody who's just suddenly decided oh let's talk about wellness um, because it's the buzzword of the moment and it is it's the fastest growing consumer industry globally it's been estimated at being worth over 500 billion you know, it's massive. And the reason for that, of course, is that we're all hopefully living longer. 
and we want to live well. You know, if we are going to live all these lovely extra years on our life, how can we make sure that we're giving our bodies the best chance to do that? It's all very well having extra years on our life, but if we don't have life in those years, you know, what's the point? And I think we're now looking at so many of the degenerative diseases of aging and we're becoming more aware of things like dementia and Alzheimer's and brain health. How do we hang on to our brains? How do we hang on to our healthy bodies? And obviously everybody in this room today is going to be very focused and have that at front of mind. Otherwise, you know, why would you be here at a, a great event called Live Well? And that's what it's all about. And for me, as a middle-aged woman, as a mother of five, I want to bring up my children and bring up the next generation and grandchildren into the best possible healthy lives for them. But I'm also aware that I want to have the best second half. I consider my life to be potentially only halfway through. You know, if you look statistically, a child born now is very likely to reach 100 years old. And so if you look at that, that means hitting your 50s does mean being halfway through. And when you think the first maybe 20 years of our life is childhood and education, we've then had kind of 30 years of adulthood, you're going to have at least hopefully another 30, 40 years more. So how do we make sure that those are better than ever? And it's an interesting question because it's a time, particularly for women, when our hormones start to conspire against us. And we've had all this sort of young, fresh activity and vitality, and we're faced with decades ahead of us, and how do we get to do that well? Well, when I first started writing for the magazine, this has been going now for, um, I think we're in our fourth year, it's published now by Hearst, which is fantastic, so it's kind of being taken seriously as a grown-up magazine. Uh, and when I first started writing features for that, I was interviewing all sorts of different people. I was interviewing dermatologists about skin and oncologists and cancer specialists about cancer treatments. I was interviewing fitness people and psychiatrists and mental health experts about depression and low mood and anxiety. And almost everything that these experts touched on came back to the gut. And a lot of these experts were saying, well, of course, our latest research shows that the serotonin in our gut is really helping our brain, or actually it's the, the, the cortisol steel that is affecting our stress levels that we can help combat with better gut health. So I was so fascinated that all these global researchers were putting all their time and effort and millions, multi-multi-million dollar and pound budgets going into projects like the British Gut Project run out of King's or the American Gut Project run out of Harvard and really coming up with some very interesting findings. So that's really why I wrote The Good Gut Guide. It was to try and bring together a lot of that early research into how can we have better gut health. Now, I'm sure that many of us here are, are well aware of, of gut health. Does anybody drink kefir? Excellent. Anybody not drink kefir? Ooh, okay. Do come and try. Kefir, um, I'm, my, my studios, they call me the kefir queen, because I always have kefir. In my studios in Battersea, where we publish the magazine, it's free kefir for everybody. You know, I, I would love to see kefir in schools. I'd love to see it in hospitals, in prisons. You know, I just think it's anywhere where you've got a, a captive group of people that you can encourage to have better gut, gut health. It's one of the simple, easiest, most fundamental changes that we can make in our diet. 
one of the things that I love about gut health actually is that you don't have to give anything up. You know, I'm not a great one for giving stuff up. I'm always asked at the beginning of the year, you know, January, so what are your New Year's resolutions? What are you giving up? And I'd say, well, I'm not really giving up anything. I mean, if anything, I'm kind of giving up, giving up because I think we should actually add stuff in. I think it's much more positive. And I think you're much more likely to succeed if you have a mentality of what can we bring into our lives. Sure, if you've got really toxic, unhealthy habits, absolutely, then those need to be cut down or, or given up. But for the rest of it, it's about encouraging good stuff in. And what I love about gut health is it's all about having better microbiome. So basically, in a nutshell, over recent years, scientists and medics have discovered almost what they're calling the new, a new organ of the body, the microbiome. And that's our gut. And it's important because it controls everything about how we live. We have more gut microbes in our body than we have cells in our body. So if you like, we're more gut bacteria than we are anything else. And we have trillions of these microbes and they affect everything. They affect our immunity. So really important if you know, you're listening to all the news about the coronavirus and how do we protect ourselves, how do we get better immunity. If you look at aging, cellular degeneration, that's controlled by our gut microbes. If you look at weight gain and weight loss, we know that the reason that some people can be eating exactly the same thing, you can have identical twins. One has a predisposition to gaining weight, the other is a healthy weight. Why? Because their gut microbiome is different. So we know that all kinds of bodily functions are controlled by our gut microbes. Mental health. You may say, well, you know, what's our gut got to do with our brain? Well, our gut and our brain are linked with the largest nerve in the body, the vagus nerve that goes from the brain to the, to the gut. We used to think that our brain cells were just in our gut, but we now know that we have brain cells in our gut. So these neurotransmitters whiz up and down super fast, faster than we can actually rationally think. And it's really interesting, when you look at language, you know, people talk about, um, uh, I was wondering what that was for a moment, um, some alien landing. Um, people talk about having a gut instinct or having butterflies in the tummy or didn't feel right in my gut when I was thinking about that. And that's actually a real phenomenon. Those are those little neurotransmitters in our gut communicating with our brain instinctively something that our brain has yet to process. And I've learned actually to, over the years to trust my gut instinct. I remember I, I um, hired somebody not that long ago and on paper they looked absolutely perfect. You know, the CV was just absolutely spot on. And when I met them, I thought there's just something from the very first moment I met them, I thought this is just not quite right. I couldn't put my finger on it and I had lots of other people come and do second and third interviews and say, you know, this person looks absolutely great, but there's, I'm just not sure about it. But my brain, you know, rationally is saying absolutely. Anyway, it turned out to be a very disastrous mistake that didn't end well. And that was a kind of a lesson to me that instinctively there was something that my gut microbes were immediately able to tell me. So I always listened to my gut instinct. Now, obviously, you've got to rationalize and process stuff. You know, maybe, maybe go away and sleep on a big decision. Don't just go on first impressions. But very often, those gut instincts, and there's a reason why, even in early cultures, people were talking about gut instinct. Or if we have butterflies in our tummy, something's just not feeling quite right. And that's what's happening in our gut that's influencing our brain. 
Now, the good thing about that is that we can help to shift mental health and encourage greater resilience and joyful mood through what we eat in our gut. We know that the majority of our serotonin, for example, which is the happy chemical in the brain, the one that eases anxiety and lifts our mood, um, is produced in the gut. We can actually create more serotonin in the gut. And having lots of serotonin protects us against stress. When we're stressed, we go into kind of fight or flight mode and we're producing lots of cortisol, which is lowering our immunity and it's affecting our sleep and it's making us feel edgy and uncomfortable. Well, by looking at our gut health, we can help improve that. So uh, I don't know if any of you have got teenagers here or kids going through stressful situations, exams. Last summer, I had um, a teenager doing A-levels and uni entrance and another one doing GCSEs. And, you know, my household was really tense for those months of, uh, of revision and exam taking. And believe me, I packed them with so many probiotics. They would like come down in the morning. I was like, right, okay, here's your kefir, here's your sauerkraut, here are your probiotics. And they're like, oh, come on, mum. But actually, they really did, I think, compared to their peers, they did seem to get through a lot of the stresses and the strains. And I say for anybody going through any kind of stress and stressful time and anxiety, do please look at what you can fortify your gut health with. So... When we're looking at gut health, we're really talking about two things. We're talking about things that we can put in that are really beneficial to our microbiome and things that we should be avoiding. Um, the things that affect our microbes, things like stress can deplete our microbes, eating ultra-processed foods, that's basically anything out of a packet, um, aspartame. For example, I don't have any diet drinks or any aspartame in the house. That's been shown to be a gut disruptor. So it's being aware of things like that that negatively affect our gut health. But I think more importantly, it's about let's put all these, these good things back in. So there are two forms of gut health, essentially. There's probiotics and prebiotics. And when I was writing my book, my, my um, publisher was going, there's a load of spelling mistakes in your book. You keep write, writing prebiotic instead of probiotic. And I said, yes, that's because it's a different thing. Okay, so prebiotics are the food for your probiotics. So probiotics are all the good gut bugs. And there are, as I said, trillions of them. And even now, you know, there are researchers working in labs all over the world identifying all these different strains. We don't really know enough about it yet. We can't say, oh, well, if you have lactobacillus, that's going to be good for flu. And if you have, um, I don't know, uh, brains gone, ruteri, you know, that's going to be good for, for mental health. Yes, there are some things that we know are likely to be implicated. Um, for example, if you have any recurring UTIs or cystitis or pelvic infections, then lactobacillus rhamnosus is a really good strain. But we don't yet know enough to be able to go, okay, let's use them like medicines. Let's, you know, self-select. So the, the best advice really is to have as many as you can because we don't know specifically which ones and we don't really know how much either. So I just say let's get as many as we can of as many different diversity. And our gut, our microbiome is a bit like a garden and you want to have lots of diversity, biodiversity in your garden. You want to plant lots and lots of seeds, have all these little spores of gut bacteria. And then once you've planted your seeds, you want to be able to feed them. You know, seeds need 
sunshine and water and good soil to grow. And so your gut microbiome needs a good environment for these gut bugs to flourish. Otherwise, you put them in and they're just going to die. So you need to be able to feed them. And that's where your prebiotics come in. So your prebiotics are the food that your probiotics need to thrive. And it's usually a form of fiber, insoluble fiber. That's why a lot of uh, supplements, you'll see they contain inulin. Inulin is a prebiotic fiber, and you find it in foods like artichokes and asparagus, and all those kind of hard to digest things contain inulin. So if you're having a probiotic supplement, it's useful to see if it's got inulin in it. Or you can actually take inulin itself as a fibre, or you just eat lots of lovely fibrous things. Beans and pulses contain the prebiotic fibre that feed our gut microbes. So what are the five uh, things that I personally would recommend to improve your gut microbiota? Well, it's the 5Ks. When I talk about 5Ks, I'm not talking about running 5Ks, although that's obviously a good thing. I'm talking about the 5Ks of gut health. And the 5Ks are kraut, kimchi, kombucha, kefir, and kamut. Um, kamut actually is a bit of a red herring. Kamut actually is sourdough, but that wouldn't work, would it? Because then it would be the 4Ks and an S. So we call it kamut, so we've got 5Ks. So starting with um, sauerkraut, does anybody make their own sauerkraut? Okay, it's so easy. Isn't it easy? And it's so cheap. Oh my goodness, it's, probably, it's the cheapest thing and the most efficient thing that you could ever make in your whole life. This is one, you're welcome to come and try it. This is one that I made a couple of months ago. It's just red cabbage. It's got a little bit of uh, fennel seed in there just for extra flavoring. All you need is a vegetable, often cabbage, because that ferments really well, but you can pretty much use anything. You can chop in carrots or fennel or, you know, whatever you like. Um, Chinese cabbage actually works really well. Greens, you can put in asparagus, you know, you can do whatever you like. Uh, and you just make a solution of salt water, so it's just a brine, a really nice strong brine, chopped up veggies that you kind of pound a bit to get the juices out shove it in a jar like this and leave it alone for a few weeks and it ferments and if you use a kilner jar like this it's really useful every now and then just to kind of burp it to let the the gas out and you can keep this i mean i would keep this potentially for years um, except i would be eating it so it wouldn't last that long if you want to stop the fermentation process you put it in the fridge if you want to keep it fermenting, you keep it somewhere warm. Um, and what it does is it, it basically it ferments and it encourages good beneficial bacteria. And when you look at all the different cultures around the world, you know, sauerkraut is probably best known in Germany, and that's their form of fermented foods. If you look at kefir, which I'll talk about in a moment, that's very popular in Poland and Eastern Europe, in the Caucasus, where it came from originally. Kimchi is, is the Korean pickle, which is very popular in Asia and Japan. If you look at France, you've got buttermilk, which is a cultured product. Here we have yogurt. You know, every culture has its own form of fermented or cultured foods. 
So sauerkraut, super easy. Lots of recipes actually in, in the Good Gut Guide. That's half recipes. There are lots of easy things about um, way to make stuff at home. And what I do is I try and have a little bit of sauerkraut every day. So if you're making a sandwich or adding a salad, you could just uh, add that in really easily. If you're having a baked potato, you can put it on there. If you, uh, you know, are just serving, I don't know, grilled fish, chicken, whatever, just have a little spoonful beside. You don't need a lot of it. You know, one spoonful will contain millions of beneficial bacteria. The key thing is if you're not used to eating fermented foods, don't do it all at once because you'll end up with a bloated stomach. Your gut will be going, whoa, what is this? You know, we're not used to all this activity going on. So start small. You know, if you're starting with kefir, never had it before, just have a spoonful in the morning. I now have a glass full. I absolutely love it. I think it's actually healthily addictive. I can almost feel my, my gut microbes in the morning saying, feed me that kefir because, you know, we really want it to sustain ourselves. So that's sauerkraut. Kefir is probably, you know, if I was ever on Desert Island Discs and I had to give my one choice of what I would take with me, I would be taking a fridge full of kefir, self-replenishing fridge of kefir. Kefir is fermented milk and it has been shown to be hugely beneficial, particularly for anybody with any kind of digestive issues. So IBS, IBD, I did a, a podcast actually with the founder of Nourish Kefir, amazing woman, uh, who started her company after being invalided out of a high-flying city job with Crohn's disease. And she, was, she basically spent two years of her life in bed. She had every treatment. She was on high-strength steroids, all these really um, awful medications with unpleasant side effects. And a Polish friend came to visit her and brought her some kefir. And after she started drinking this, she started to feel better and she investigated it. And long story short, she basically cured her Crohn's with kefir. It's a really fascinating podcast. If you, if you go onto iTunes or Spotify or any of your um, podcast platforms, just put in Lizelle, you'll find the Lizelle Wellbeing podcast. I think we've got about 147 episodes now and they're all listed. So you can find the one, Deborah Carr, talking about kefir. And it's riveting. And so her kefir company, I'm pleased to say, has just grown from strength to strength. And this is, um, I'm not actually a huge fan of goat's milk, but this is quite a nice goat's milk kefir. So if you want to try it, I'm going to at the end, I've got some little cups. I'm sorry they're plastic, but I think um, they do get recycled afterwards. But if you'd like to come and try any. So this is a goat's milk kefir. Um, this is a basic one. This is just um, cow's milk. And then they do flavoured ones. This is really nice. My kids love this. This is strawberry. And this is one of their newer ones, blueberry and pomegranate, which is also really absolutely delicious. You can also make your own. I'm not sure if I brought with me. Um, I do actually travel when I go away. I travel with their grains. No, I think I must have left them at home. But she does make um, sachets of powder, kefir powder. And they're really good to take away with you. So if I'm traveling, uh, I will always take a sachet. And then when I get to wherever I'm going, uh, even if, you know, if it's a hotel, I'll say, can I have a jug of milk? And, and, and uh, I'll take an empty jar to shake it in. Or if I'm staying with friends, I'll say, can I grab some milk? Um, shake it up, leave it out overnight at room temperature. And then by the morning, it's thickened into kefir. And then you can pop it in the fridge. Um, and it is absolutely delicious. Some people say to me, you know, what about using plant milks? 
I don't actually like the term plant milk because milk doesn't come from plants. It's like plant juice. You know, it's almond juice or soya juice or whatever. It, just because it's white doesn't make it milk. Its chemical composition is hugely different. And the thing about kefir, technically, you shouldn't really call something made with almond milk or um, coconut milk kefir because kefir, the bacteria, need the animal proteins and the lactose in the milk sugars to grow. And that's what gives it its efficacy. Um, so if you make a kefir-type drink with something like coconut milk or almond milk, yes, it's going to have some probiotic activity, but it's not going to be as powerful as the animal-based proteins that you get in, in animal milk. So studies show that if you have an animal-based milk kefir, it reaches further down into the um, intestines because it survives that the animal proteins coat the bacteria and protect them against some of the activity from the stomach acid. Um, so I love drinking kefir. Interestingly, anybody who's lactose-free who might be thinking, oh, I can't have that. And my, my eldest son actually is uh, lactose intolerant, so he doesn't have any. He has all the lactose-free milks, etc. He's fine with kefir. And the reason for that is that the microbes in the kefir digest 99.9% .9 of the lactose. That's what they use to grow. That's their food for, for feeding and for energy. So if you are lactose-free, the chances are that you can have normal milk-based kefir because the bacteria in it have already digested all the lactose. So do come and, and try some of those delicious kefirs afterwards if you'd like to. Uh, so the next uh, K stands for kimchi. Has anybody tried kimchi? Kimchi is, is an amazing, and it's a really easy way. You know, I talked about adding stuff into the diet. It's a really easy way um, to add these beneficial bacteria is in. It's really delicious in a sandwich or uh, you can stir it into hummus. You know, you can use it to flavor and, and just you can jazz up sauces. Probiotics don't really like being heated. So if you wanted, if you're having a bolognese sauce, for example, and you'd cooked it out and you're about to serve it, when it's warm, I would then stir in a spoonful of kimchi so as not to kill off the beneficial bacteria. But it gives it an amazing tang. And if you've got kids who are quite fussy or quite picky and, and aren't going to eat a spoonful of this on the side of their plate, if you stir it into soups and sauces and things like that, then they may not notice and they'll get all the beneficial bacteria. Uh, sauerkraut, um, sorry, not sauerkraut, sourdough. I haven't got any sourdough bread here, but I think we all know sourdough. That's the kamut. What's very interesting also about sourdough is I was looking at some research the other day talking about people who are gluten intolerant, saying that very often those who have a gluten intolerance and even to some extent celiac, although obviously you'd need to check very much with your doctor if that is your case, um, can cope with some sourdoughs, genuine sourdoughs. And again, it's because of the fermentation process, neutralizing some of the, um, the proteins and the substances that cause the allergic reaction. So my dad, interestingly, he, he has toast every morning for breakfast. And uh, he said to my mum the other day, oh, you know, can you get some of that, that weird sour stuff that my daughter makes toast with? Um, because I find that when I have that for breakfast, I don't have to have my indigestion tablets afterwards. And I said, what do you mean you have indigestion tablets? Every time you eat a piece of toast, you have an indigestion tablet. He said, yes, like it's normal. I was going, well, if you told me that a while ago, I would have you know, helped you hopefully do something about it. But it was just very interesting that he noticed 
that just making a simple switch from buying sourdough toast, sourdough bread to make into toast, his gut was not complaining and he wasn't having that acid reflux and that sensitivity that you get afterwards. So, uh, so my dad was a very good guinea pig. Uh, so sourdough, again, a super simple switch to make. Instead of buying regular bread, buy sourdough. Do make sure that it's proper sourdough. Unfortunately, with so much stuff going on and, and people charging more for sourdough, uh, some bakeries are shortcutting and they're calling things sourdough when they're not properly sour, aged over time. Um, there's a very good campaign. You've probably heard of the campaign for real ale. Well, now there's the campaign for real sourdough. And uh, you can look it up online, and it tells you all about what to look for to get, make sure that you're getting the real sourdough bread. And again, you can make it. I've got a recipe in here. You have a starter culture, a bit like a starter culture for yogurt, which is super easy to make. You know, I love making yogurt, by the way. Yogurt is great. Yogurt's a bit like kefir. Uh, kefir is the kind of the supercharged cousin to yogurt but live yogurt has still got so many beneficial bacteria in it it's really healthy really great thing problem with um, buying it is that you're buying all these disposable plastic pots that you're chucking away that end up in landfill it's expensive it's often thickened with things or sweetened with sugar so easy to make yogurt you just need to get one really good quality starter pot of yogurt i like yo valley organic plain yogurt's a really good one but lots of others are out there you mix it with a bit of milk you leave it overnight in a warm place come down in the morning there you are you've got yogurt and you can keep it in a bowl in the fridge and it does away with all that plastic it does away with having to shop for it um, and you just keep it going save a little bit for the next time and then you just make it keep it going like a starter culture the same with sourdough and um, the last K that I'm going to talk about is kombucha. This is a really nice brand, um, Mighty Brew. They make proper kombucha. Does anybody here make kombucha? Yeah, you do it all, don't you? It's really good. You should be up here. <laughs> uh, kombucha is super easy and it's a fascinating thing. Uh, it's, it looks a bit like an alien life form in a bowl. It's, it's a bit like a brownie pancake and you feed it with sweet tea. Sounds really strange, there's a whole how-to in, in here. Uh, you need to get your starter culture to find, you can buy it online or there are lots of uh, swaps because we end up with lots and lots. Once you start making kombucha, you end up with lots and lots of kombuchas because it grows, okay? Um, and you basically have this pancake type thing and you put it in a bowl when you make some black tea with lots of sugar and you're going to go why is lots of sugar good for you well that's the food that feeds the kombucha remember how i said about kefir how it feeds on the lactose the milk sugar well a kombucha is the same thing it feeds on the sugar so after a few hi <laughs> you after me dale later on okay i'm warming it up for you and nice to see you um so kombucha is something that needs the sugar in the tea to grow so once you feed it with the hot sweet tea or the warm sweet tea, after about 10 days, that liquid has turned into this. If you want to try this, this is absolutely delicious. Again, you don't need to drink very much. You can have a small glass full every day. Uh, on a Friday evening, I like to make a kombucha martini. That goes down really well. A little bit of vodka, lump of ice, top it up with kombucha. Absolutely delicious. This is a nice one. This is one of their newer ones. This is a lemongrass flavor. And you can flavor it. I was making some the other day. I'm flavoring it with ginger. 
so you get the nice antibacterial activity as well in the kombucha. Um, again, when you're buying drinks, make sure it's made from real kombucha. So often it's, it's just like a kind of a fizzy drink. And you can normally tell there's usually maybe a little bit of sediment in there, or if you leave it long enough in a warm place, it'll start to grow almost threads of bacteria in it. You know, I think these days we've become so used to everything being so sterile and being so afraid of bacteria. I, was, I did a podcast um, day before yesterday, I recorded with Prue Leith. And she uh, was talking about her work in hospitals and trying to get hospital food up to a better standard. And I was saying, you've got to get kefir into hospitals. And she said, kefir? She said, forget it. She said, we can't even have yogurt in, in hospitals because the health authorities say, well, it contains bacteria, so it might be dangerous. It's like, come on, you can't eat sterile food. You know, we need these good things. We need to balance the good bugs so we can fight the bad bugs. Let's stop swabbing every surface with Dettol and being too clean. We need to let our kids play out in the soil and the dirt. And there's obviously a balance, clearly. But if we are robust in our microbiome with lots of good proliferation of good bacteria, then they're going to better protect us against the bad bacteria. So I'm just going to have a quick sip of water um, and check the time because... I'm aware. Oh, no, I think I've overrun. This is terrible. I haven't even got onto hormones. Right. Five or ten minutes. Yeah, ten. Yeah. Okay, great, great, great. Okay, so, so I'm so excited about gut bugs. Uh, but I am really excited to tell you about hormones. Now, this is my latest book. Uh, it came out a couple of years ago. And I was really nervous about writing it because... Menopause is such, it's kind of like a hushed word, isn't it? It's the one thing that we don't talk about. We, we talk about pregnancy and breastfeeding and postnatal depression. We talk about periods these days and period poverty. But there's something about the M word. I think because it's associated with aging and possible decrepitude and, and kind of, you know, being a, an incontinent heap in the corner. You know, this is, these are not good analogies, are they? That, you know, we as, as youthful, vigorous, energetic, women don't necessarily want to be associated with and I was nervous about talking too much about it because I thought well I don't think of myself as that woman and yet you know at, at 56 clearly affected by menopause and it's something that all women will have all women if we're lucky enough to live long enough will have a menopause and yet there's this deafening silence it's not taught in schools um, I've had five kids. Every time I saw a GP or a health visitor or a midwife, nobody said to me, oh, by the way, Liz, you know, by the time you get into your mid-40s, you're going to feel a bit different. Your hormones will start to change. Don't worry. We can help you. We can sort, replace estrogen or whatever. Um, but just be aware that you may have a low mood. You may get anxiety. You may start to have really bad headaches, migraines. Your joints may start to ache. You may have hearing loss. You may have dry eyes. Your sense of taste may change. You may have digestive issues. Um, and not to mention, of course, all the hot flushes and insomnia and all the other things that, that traditionally we, we are associating with menopause. So there are around 50 different symptoms of lowering estrogen levels which start to happen typically in our mid-40s and that's the time that's called perimenopause so menopause is technically 
the year after your last period. So it's very hard to know when that will be. And it just means that you, your periods have stopped. Meno, menstruation, has stopped. Pause pauses. However, hormones, they don't suddenly get switched off. It's not a tap in our body that goes, oh, right, that's it. You had enough now. What happens is they gradually decline over years. And it's that gradual decline that causes us to feel different. So thinking back, when I was in my mid-40s, I used to get really bad headaches that I couldn't really understand. It wasn't migraine, but I'd have to go to bed for a day and take a lot of painkillers to try and get over it. My sleep began to get disrupted. I started to wake up at four in the morning and think, why am I awake? Because I normally sleep really well. I had tinnitus in my ears and I thought, this is really awful. You know, is this going to develop? I'm going to live with this for the rest of my life. Nobody ever said, oh, well, that's because your estrogen is declining. So it was only really when I started to research and write the Good Menopause Guide and I came across a brilliant doctor called Dr. Louise Newson who has a website called The Menopause Doctor, menopausedoctor.co.uk. Everybody in this room needs to follow her. She is amazing. Anybody follow her already? Yeah, she is top. Um, and she works tirelessly. Where she gets the energy from? I mean, she works like 20 hours a day and she's trying to educate GPs because really scarily and scandalously GPs are not taught mandatory menopause training even now during their medical school training despite the fact that half their patients are women all of whom will have a menopause so you know very briefly I talk a lot about this here I talk a lot about it online so if you don't already follow Liz our well-being please do sign up for our newsletters because we often put a lot of information about this and lots of links and helpful resources but if you are or know somebody who is in their early to mid 40s beginning to feel anxiety so many women go to their GP in midlife with anxiety and borderline depression and are prescribed antidepressants which won't help antidepressants are good if you are clinically depressed if you have low mood and anxiety because the estrogen receptors in your brain are not being fed with estrogen then an antidepressant will just numb you. It won't actually replace the estrogen. The only way to replace estrogen in your brain to help combat low mood anxiety and depression is to take estrogen. Now, I'd love to have a lot more time here to talk about estrogen. The big elephant in the room, obviously, when talking about things like hormone replacement therapy, HRT, is breast cancer. Um, I've written a lot about that. The, there were some very, very poor, skewed, wrongly reported studies that came out um, in the 70s, which basically frightened women into believing that HRT was going to give them breast cancer. Luckily, those studies were wrong. You're far more likely to get breast cancer by um, having sugary drinks and being overweight and not exercising and drinking alcohol. HRT, especially the modern form of transdermal HRT, which is patches and gels, estrogen patches and gels, rather than the older-fashioned tablet type, um, have very, very, very low risk um, and are actually protective 
when you have estrogen, when you replace your estrogen or have HRT, you're better protected from things like colon cancer. You're a third better protected. It reduces your rate of coronary heart disease by 50%. It's a very interesting studies coming out in America a few weeks ago looking at the rate of Alzheimer's um, with women on HRT having a protective effect. Did you know that women are twice as likely to develop Alzheimer's as men? And the researchers are looking at that, and the reason is, is because we lose our estrogen in our brain. And now they're thinking that actually taking replacing estrogen earlier in life may well have a protective effect for Alzheimer's. So this is obviously a huge subject. It's, it's unfortunately far too big. Um, but I just wanted to really touch on it because I know this talk was billed as sort of health for midlife women and beyond. And I don't think that you can achieve genuine good health without taking a serious look at hormones and really looking at the benefits of replacing estrogen, progesterone, testosterone. Women need testosterone. We actually produce more testosterone in our ovaries than, than we do estrogen. And this is something that help, helps, doesn't only help sexual function and libido, but actually helps cognitive function. I was with a, a brain behavioral neuroscientist yesterday, uh, Dan Levitin, and we did a podcast which will come out uh, later this year, talking about the role of testosterone in the brain for memory. So many midlife women report brain fog and memory loss. You know, you think, where are my keys? Why can't I remember anything anymore? And it's because we're losing these hormones in our brain. So lots to talk about, but I have recorded many, many podcasts on this. So if Anything that I've said here today has touched a nerve or sparked an interest and you think, I'd love to know a bit more about the role of testosterone or gut health or menopause or the safety of HRT. I've recorded two amazing podcasts with a guy called Professor Michael Baum, who is probably the world's leading breast cancer specialist, who is passionately in favor of women taking HRT. Um, he was the lead oncologist at the Royal Marsden and pioneered the early trials in tamoxifen. And he's absolutely fascinating. So if that's an area of interest for you, do please go and take a look and share these podcasts with your girlfriends, with your colleagues, with your sisters, your daughters, your mothers, your wives, um, because there is so much information. And as I said right back at the beginning of my talk, everything that I do and base my work on, my entire working life is all about evidence-based information. And I hope that when you read anything that I write or listen to anything that I say, that you can be sure in the knowledge that it's backed by proper research and proper evidence. And uh, I'm sorry to have overrun, but we do have... Do we have time for questions or is it just tastings? Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, we've got 15 minutes for a quick Q&A and oh, then excellent. some sampling. Great. And we've got the cafe lady over there who's got more samples. Oh, lovely. Well done. Try. Thank you. Yes, so do come and set um, up over here. Throw it open for anyone who's got a question. Hello. Um, a quick question Hi. about kefir. Yes. Do you have to be very careful about which kefir you choose as well? Because there must. I know there, there are so lots. many kefirs. Absolutely. My view is that the more the merrier. Each different brand of kefir contains different cultures. Um, so I buy a variety. I love Nourish. I think it's a really, really good brand, and I know the founder, and I know the way she makes it is very good. Um, but there are lots of other brands out there, and I think that if I'm out buying kefir, I mean, I try not to buy it, actually, because it's always in plastic. That's the other thing. Um, I like to make it. You can make kefir. You can buy grains. You can buy powdered sachets. You can make your own. 
but having a variety of different cafes in the fridge is, is useful. And when I travel, I deliberately go and buy different types of kefir. Interestingly, a few years ago, really the only place you could buy it was in the Polish aisle of supermarkets. Uh, because when all the Polish people came over to the UK, they wanted to carry on drinking their amazing kefir. And so some of the cheapest kefir that you can buy just comes in those like Tetra Pak cartons and it's in Polish and in very small letters you'll see kefir written on it. And I'll go and buy that as well because that's coming across from Poland. That will have different bacterial strains in it. So I think, you know, we just don't know yet. It's still such an emerging science. We don't know which types are best. And I just think we need to get a little bit of everything going on. But the key thing is to drink it doesn't matter what type it is, what just start drinking vegan? it. Well, if, if you're vegan, um, then you're going to have to make a probiotic cultured drink out of, I wouldn't call it kefir, but you're going to make it with coconut milk or almond milk or whatever. It's not going to be the same. It's not going to be as effective, but it's better than nothing. Yeah. Thank you. I'm actually going to have some of this kefir before it all goes because it's too good. <laughs> Any more questions? Stung yeah, to all okay. inside. Oh, one lady here. Um, I'm quite interested in making sauerkraut. Yes. You're saying you make it with a strong brine. Yes. Does that mean that the salt content of it is pretty bad? The salt high. content is quite high, um, but you're only having a little bit of it. So it's a bit like having like a tomato ketchup or something like that. You know, you're not going to eat this whole jar. Um, so, I mean, when I say quite high, you know, you've got probably three or four spoonfuls of salt maybe in there. Um, teaspoonfuls, not 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 big spoonfuls. So it's not it's not massive. I mean, it would be less salt, say, than a bag of crisps. Um, so, and actually, salt is not that bad. But that's a whole other story. <laughs> we'll do that another day. <laughs> but yeah, there are lots of other other reasons why One we should be giving up other here. things. Yes, hi. If um, your doctor has decided you can't take HRT, mm. that's their advice, what would you say is the one thing that you can, I don't know, concentrate on? Is it change your doctor. Health? Yeah. <laughs> no, seriously, change your doctor. But is there anything else in terms of more natural, would you say, gut health is probably... That's, re that's a really interesting question. Um, first of all, HRT is natural. So, you know, when, you, when people talk about more natural options, hormones are natural. Hormones are what is, you know, we are full of hormones. If you replace your hormones with totally body identical hormones that actually come from wild yams, these days modern HRT used to come from pregnant horses' urine, doesn't, doesn't anymore. I mean, you can still get that old form, especially in America, actually, but modern HRT comes from the wild yam plant, so it's a botanical and molecularly, it's identical to our own estrogen and progesterone, if you get estrogen and progesterone. So it is a natural thing. It's not a drug. It's not a synthetic drug that we're putting into our bodies. It's a natural hormone that's replacing, topping up our natural hormones. It's like if you were diabetic, having insulin because you have low levels of insulin or having a thyroid issue with low levels of thyroxine, you replace thyroxine. If you have low levels of estrogen, you replace your estrogen. You know, it's, it's not an artificial drug. And actually what's really interesting, I find, is that as women, we seem to be happy for decades to take the contraceptive pill, which has far higher risks. Oh my goodness. Far higher doses of synthetic hormones artificially altering the balance of hormones in our bodies. 
And yet when we get to the other end of our reproductive life, somebody top, tops, talks about topping up our natural estrogen. Oh, I can't possibly do that because it's going to give me breast cancer. Well, I understand that the media has really um, been hugely responsible in the misinformation linking HRT to breast cancer. And doctors aren't trained. And unfortunately, too many doctors you know, rely on newspaper headlines for their information. Doctors need to go by the NICE guidelines. So any GP that, for example, wants to prescribe antidepressants for low mood and anxiety in midlife needs to be challenged. And, and you need to say, well, actually, I'd like to be treated by the NICE guidelines. The NHS NICE guidelines say hormone replacement therapy, HRT, is the first course of treatment, not antidepressants. So if you could just read the NICE guidelines and treat me in accordance with those, then I'd be really grateful. Um, but so that's, sorry, that, that went off on a slight tangent there. So first of all, replacing hormones is a natural remedy. Secondly, do all these other natural remedies work? Yes. So for example, sage can help with hot flushes. Definitely. It doesn't work for everybody, but it works for some people. Oestrogen works for everybody. If you don't want to take it for whatever reason, then try sage. You need to be careful. Too much sage will give you liver failure. So you need to be really careful in how you take it. It's also quite expensive. Um, and it may not work. But if it does work for you, then great. So yes, there are certainly... For me, I would say putting natural oestrogen back into my body is more natural than taking a sage supplement. I mean, I'm not made of sage. So, you know, why would I want to have lots of sage going on in my body? It's, it's a, the reason it works, it's a chemical compound. Everything is chemical. It's either a natural chemical or it's a synthetic man-made chemical. But it's still, it's still a chemical, and it's making your body work in a different way. But yes, there are things that will work, definitely, for some people. Phytoestrogens in food can be helpful but around 25% of us don't process them. So although, you know, in my Good Menopause Guide book, I talk about having flaxseed, for example, or soya, which is a phytoestrogen, um, but some of us can't process it. And unfortunately, we don't know. There's no test for that. So you can be eating all this soya and all this flaxseed, and actually it's not going to have any effect, and you just don't know. It's just expensive and time-consuming to do it. Um, if you are somebody who has an active oestrogen-receptive breast cancer, then there are still forms of HRT that you can take. Um, and it, you know, that's obviously a big, big subject that we can't go into here. But have a look at the Menopause Doctor website. There's huge amounts of, of information out there. Some of the medics in America are now treating breast cancer with oestrogen, which is a really interesting subject. So again, those podcasts are very interesting um, to listen to. And I do firmly believe that actually in years to come, hopefully our daughters will look back and they'll go, you were living in the dark ages. What do you mean they didn't give you any oestrogen when you started to run out? I mean, that's how, how did you survive? And we'll go, well, actually, a lot of us didn't. Um, but it is a process of education, and, and I don't mind now standing up and being counted as somebody who talks very loudly and vocally about menopause because it's such an important subject. It will affect every single woman sitting in this room, and by implication, every single man who lives with a woman or works with a woman or knows a woman. Um, so I hope that's helpful. Thank you so much. But if you much. don't have a good doctor, please change your doctor. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Your Live Well. 
You can join us for more episodes and find out about future Live Well events at livewelllondon.com. To find out more about Liz Earle MBE, visit lizearlwellbeing.com. So for now, take care, live well, and we will see you for the next episode of Your Live Well.